So we're looking at the Nicene Creed over three weeks because the creed is divided into three obvious sections, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. As you know, the creeds focus on the beliefs that are of central importance to the Christian faith. If we depart from the creeds, we depart from Christianity. Last week, we looked at God the Father. This week, uh, we're looking at God the Son. And we can roughly split this middle section about Jesus into three parts. Who is Jesus? What has he done? And what has he promised? So part one, who is Jesus? The setting for today's gospel reading is the temple in Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of Dedication, which is still celebrated by Jews today. It's called Hanukkah. And Jesus is walking in Solomon's colonnade, which was a a wide walkway uh, with impressive columns either side. And this crowd of Jews gather around Jesus. Now, John doesn't tell us this, but it's likely that the spokesmen were the religious leaders. And there is one key question that they want answered. Who is Jesus? Or perhaps more to the point, who does he claim to be? And Jesus says a number of things in response, which we're going to look at later. But he finishes by saying this. He says, I and the Father are one. And the Jews are furious. They pick up stones to stone Jesus. And Jesus says to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy. Because you, a mere man, claim to be God. There's no ambiguity here. Jesus claimed to be God. And the Nicene Creed stresses that Jesus was and is God. You know, nothing in the Bible will make very much sense unless we understand, unless we believe that Jesus is God. Uh, But this fundamental truth of Christianity is not always immediately obvious, and and that partly because Jesus is regularly referred to as the Son of God. The Nicene Creed says we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. And in today's passage, Jesus refers to God as the Father no less than five times. Uh, No matter where you turn, the relationship between God and Jesus is described in terms of a father and son. But it's not a perfect analogy. It's simply an attempt to put divine truth into human language. Uh, We're to understand that there is an intimate, loving, eternal relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And it also helps us to understand that the Father's likeness is reflected in the Son, much in the same way as we see in some uh, human relationships. I sometimes have one of those scary moments when I say something and I think that sounded exactly like my dad. Does that ever happen to you? Uh, When it happens to me, I think, oh, no, I'm turning into my dad. And and often, wouldn't be such a bad thing. Uh, And often there is uh, a strong likeness between children and their parents. But no human father is completely reflected in his son. And that's where the analogy breaks down, because Jesus is the perfect reflection of God the Father. Uh, But the relationship between father and son is not the same kind of relationship that I have with Caleb, because Caleb and I are two separate beings. We understand the, uh, the divine relationship in the same way that we understand human father-son relationships, then the idea of God the Father sending Jesus his son to die on a cross for our sins, well, well that just seems horrific, barbaric, like looks like some kind of divine child abuse. Uh, 
It's only when we understand that Jesus is God that it begins to make sense. The Nicene Creed says this. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. In other words, when God sends his Son, he is sending himself. Next week we'll be looking at the person of the Holy Spirit. When God sends the Holy Spirit, he is sending himself. Admittedly, this is not an easy concept for us to get our heads around. Uh, I think uh, one of Isabel's first theological questions was, if Jesus is God, how come he prays to God? How can he pray to himself? And Jews and Muslims struggle with this too. They don't consider Christianity to be monotheistic. In other words, uh, they think that we worship more than one God, three gods. But we don't worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as three separate gods. Our understanding is that God is Trinity, one God, three persons. I think it's fair to say that there is an element of mystery about the Trinity. Now, sometimes the word mystery uh, gets used, you know, we can use it as a way kind of avoid engaging with difficult uh, passages of the Bible. We shouldn't use the word mystery like that because uh, there is plenty that God reveals to us plainly and clearly through his word, the Bible. In fact, we can be sure that uh, God reveals everything that we need to know, everything we need to know to have a right relationship with him. But the Trinity is one of those areas where I think we can say there's an element of mystery. But if God was easy to understand, he wouldn't be God. And we've all heard different analogies that are used to try and help us uh, understand the Trinity. So, for example, an egg, Uh, one egg, three parts, the uh, shell, the yolk and the white. Or St. Patrick was said to use the example of a clover leaf, Uh, one leaf, uh, three distinct parts. But these are not just analogies. And to be honest, I'm not even sure how helpful they are. Uh, But what I want, if I may, to try uh, a visual demonstration, which will also be unsatisfactory, um, but it may give us an inkling. Uh, So firstly, I want to emphasize what God isn't. God isn't one person who simply takes on the appearance of three different people depending on the situation, much like an actor from ancient Greece putting on different masks to portray uh, different characters. Uh, So God doesn't do this. It's not like we have God and then he's God the Father. So God the Father and then God the Son and then God the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's not that God is one person taking on the guise of three different people. Uh, that's, uh, there's a name for that, it's modalism, uh, and that is a heresy, that is an untruth that the church has refuted. Uh, secondly, I'm going to need three volunteers for this. So I was going to prep three people and I forgot to, so I'm just going to have to pick three random people. Uh, Stephen, would you mind helping us with this? Perhaps Tissa, sorry to pick on my wife. Um, and, uh, and, and Mark, yeah, Tissa volunteered Mark as well, he looks like he's up for it, brilliant. So if you could just stand on the stage separate from one another and facing the congregation. So a big gap between you. So 
So God is not three separate people, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, That would be polytheism, the belief in uh, more than one God. So what I want you to do is if you come into this space here and just stand back to back and link your arms. So for all the books and the debates and the lectures and seminars and essays about the Trinity, uh, this is about the best visual picture that I could give you. Uh, And Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus was and is God. One God, three distinct people. Uh, So if you could take your seat. Thank you for that. Yeah. Exactly. No preparation, and they perform that brilliantly. So Jesus uh, has been with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit for all eternity. Our creed tells us that through him, all things were made. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all involved in the act of creating. So think back to Good Friday and to Jesus's crucifixion. What we have here is an attempt by human beings to destroy their creator. In this case, by physical uh, crucifixion. We could knock that um, off the screen now, Lee. Uh, an attempt to destroy their creator, in this uh, case, by physical crucifixion. But humans are still trying to kill God today. Only now it seems a lot more civilized. It it takes the form of uh, trying to rationalize him away with clever sounding intellectual arguments. Uh, It amounts to the same thing, though. Uh, People want God out of the picture. Uh, They don't want to be accountable to God. They don't want him interfering. They want to get rid of God. Uh, Human beings want to kill God. Uh, The darkness will keep trying to snuff out the light until the darkness is no more. So Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, co-creator with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The next part of the creed answers the question, what has Jesus done? It says this, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. Made man is important because although we understand that uh, Jesus was and is God in every sense, he also was and is human in every sense. He's 100% God and 100% man. He's the God-man. We need to hold those things in balance. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures, according to all those prophecies that we've been looking at from the Old Testament. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, we're going to skim this section today, not because it's unimportant, but because, in a way, we're a bit more familiar with it. Uh, This section is a 66-word summary of the good news. It's like the message of Christmas and Easter, and actually the first part of the book of Acts, all rolled into a very concise statement. Take a long time to unpack it. But suffice to say this, Colossians 1.15 describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God. God makes himself known to us in and through Jesus. God speaks to us through Jesus. Jesus is everything that God wants to say to us in a person. Jesus not only reveals God's character, but he reveals God's plan. He not only reveals God's plan, 
but he uh, puts it into effect. And what this uh, section of the Nicene Creed gives us is um, God's great rescue plan for the whole of humanity and actually for all of creation, uh, brought into effect through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So finally, part three, what has Jesus promised? Our creed says this, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. For some reason, we sometimes get a bit queasy when it comes to talking about God's judgment. We think, oh, judgment, that doesn't sound very nice. We don't like the thought of being judged by God. But then we turn on the TV and we see some awful atrocity, uh, a school shooting, the gassing of civilians, uh, a brutal rape, and there's something inside of us that cries out for justice. So why do we find it so hard to believe that a loving God will also be a just judge? The thread of God's judgment runs through Scripture. And the New Testament consistently tells us that God, that Jesus will return to judge the world. Uh, but this should be seen as a good thing. This should be seen as something to celebrate because Jesus is loving and compassionate and merciful and just. He is the only one that can be trusted to give a judgment that is 100% fair. What's more, he's provided a way for us to be forgiven and reconciled to God. He's died so that we don't have to. But Jesus made it very clear that not everyone will take this way back to God that he has provided. When Jesus returns, there'll be a judgment of the living and the dead. In other words, everyone who has ever lived, both past and present, will face judgment. But not everyone will fall on the same side of that judgment. Think of some of Jesus' parables, the wheat and the weeds, the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the chaff, etc., etc. We, we will not all see receive the same verdict. Uh, but this end-of-time judgment will also herald the renewal of creation. It will mean the end of pain and suffering and injustice and evil of every kind. Jesus' kingdom will be established forever. This is wonderful news. It is the most wonderful news. So let us return to Jesus in the temple being questioned about his identity. The Jews surrounding him say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus says, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Jesus identifies two types of people, those who are his sheep and those who are not. And it's his sheep that will be given eternal life. Why? Uh, Because they're better or more holy, more loved? No. Uh, Because they happen to be Jewish or Uh, uh, Australian or Chinese or whatever? No. Because they do church in a certain way? No. Because they come to church every week? No. Jesus' sheep will inherit eternal life because they hear his voice and follow him. I once visited Moscow 
And in Moscow, they have a very elaborate metro system. Uh, some of the stations look like um, museums that have chandeliers and statues and mosaics, and they tend to be very deep underground. And at the bottom of the escalators, they have escalator attendants, whose job it is to press the stop button if anything goes wrong on the escalator. Uh, and these attendants tend to look quite morose. Actually, I found it, I could only find one picture of one, but I, I did find a picture of one. Um, although I can't remember them looking that cheerful. And I remember on a couple of occasions trying to get the attention of one of these escalator attendants. I think I was hoping to get directions. And it was like speaking to a waxwork. It didn't matter what I said or did, they just continued staring dead ahead. Uh, they completely ignored me. It was like they couldn't see or hear me. Quite extraordinary. But when it comes to hearing Jesus... The world can be a bit like one of those Russian escalator attendants. Completely uninterested, unable to hear, refusing to hear, blocking him out. Well, we should want to do the opposite of that. And when we pray the Nicene Creed, we are giving voice to the truth of the gospel, to the good news. We're saying these are the things that we believe. These are the things that we hold dear. We have heard Jesus' voice. And we put our faith and our trust in him. That's the first part of our response and probably the easiest. As Jesus' brother James pointed out, he, he said, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. God speaks. Are we prepared to listen? We pray the creed. We must also live by it. We must also live in the light of it. When we pray the creed and we focus on these central truths of Christianity, central truths about Jesus and who he is and what he came to do, it is life-changing. God will bring change and transformation to us by his spirit. And, and there will be a difference in who we are. There will be a difference in our character, not overnight. It's a gradual, progressive change. We pray the creed. We must also live in the light of it. Live as people who really believe this is true, and I know that we do. So to recap, uh, this section of the Nicene Creed tells us who Jesus is. He is God. He's the second person of the Trinity, co-creator with the Father and the Holy Spirit. What has Jesus done? He's provided a way for sinful human beings to be brought back into a right relationship, a friendship with God. What has Jesus promised? He's promised to judge the world, to restore creation, and to give eternal life to those who hear his voice and follow him. Let's pray. In fact, I think it's appropriate that we go straight into the Nicene Creed. This is a prayer, and we're going to pray it together. We're going to stand and pray now.